Coming at you. Welcome, 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 Flight 2 Friday podcast listeners. It's great to be back with y'all. And uh, I got a good episode here. First of all, Kenny, how you doing? Sam, how are you, sir? I'm doing excellent. I'm, I'm doing really good. Hey, I want to I throw a little shout out here today. Uh, I'm going to crack a beer to get our uh, episode started. Um, one of the big, uh, biggest fans of our, our podcast, Ryan's uh, dad, James Vandehei. Sir, we really appreciate these delicious beers. I have the Thimble Island Brewing Company Seafoam New England Pale Ale. It's a five percenter. That's why Kenny handed it to me because it's not over six. Uh, Kenny, what do you got? Yeah, thanks, James. I got the uh, two juice. It's a hazy, juicy IPA, and we're uh, topping out at eight point two percent here. So it's going to be a good episode. Yeah, let me yeah, let me get a little taste of this. Oh yeah, yeah, listeners, you should get one of these Thimble Island Brewing Company Seafoam. Quite good. Anyways, uh, into the real stuff that we're doing today. We've got a great guest today. We're going to be talking about some fleet MOI and then specifically diving into AOPS with a little bit of a highlight on uh, Air Station Houston. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We'll, we'll get into it. You know what really grinds my gears? No, but I don't see you coming up with anything. Why don't you get with the freaking program? And that, people, is what grinds my gears. Hey, Big Rig. Yeah. Hey, man, it's Kenny. We're live, uh, Flight Suit Friday podcast, man. What's grinding your gears today? Oh, you know what's uh, grinding my gears today? <laughs> I'll tell you. The person who got rid of boxed lunches. <laughs> now, you might think he was a fixed wing guy, but those guys lived on boxed lunches. I mean, I mean, what else? I mean, they'll save lives. They don't do anything except fly around for hours, so. It definitely wasn't a fixed wing guy. It had to be some sort of like nerds. Probably the same guy that got rid of like full per diem somewhere that was a good deal. Someone who was like, "Hey, this is a good deal for everybody else but us. So let's get a good of let's get rid of this box lunch." Like I bet half our audience doesn't even know what a box lunch is anymore. Do you guys, do you guys know what a box lunch was? Right? Oh yeah, I had. I don't think I had one since I was a cadet though. Man, it was a great experience. Oh, it was it was uh, it was dependent on your uh, culinary specialist these days. The cooks, the damn FSs, they were beautiful. You had these beautiful <laughs> beef jerky sticks in there. Sometimes M&Ms. if you were lucky, you got M and M's, uncrustables. I think like I was just gonna say, I think the yeah, the creme to the creme was the uncrustables. <laughs> I mean, that thing was perfect. Oh, and then if you got like a crappy FS, you got like a uh, soggy tortilla wrap, a piece of like turkey from two weeks ago, and a slice of lettuce that. Uh, I don't know, was confusing with the tomato because they're both garbage depending on how crappy your FSs were. But if you had good ones. My last box lunch was a deployment on Hitron where they sent up a unripe mango and spaghetti and meatballs. I was like, <laughs> cool, thanks for that. <laughs> they guys. you a fork? <laughs> no. <laughs> no fork? Just spaghetti no fork, and meatballs yeah. and a whole unripe mango. <laughs> yeah, you got to love it. I was on one and they sent us the same, it was the same deal. They sent us up. It was like an apple that was, was from like Panama. So it had like worms in it. And then it was like shepherd's pie. That's what it was. I was like, you're really sending us shepherd's pie. Did you also not get a fork for that one? No, I think we got a spoon. So we were lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, that was great. But the oranges were good back in the day for the, uh, before we had, uh, 
airborne use of force. Apparently, you could throw them at the at the uh, the boats that we were chasing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what grinds my gearbox. The lack of box lunches. Come on, let's people. Let's bring back something good for once. Yeah, those uh, senior officers listening. We want our box lunches back. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Thanks, Big Rig. We'll talk to you later. All right. All right, let's kick it off. Uh, first, just one quick announcement. It turns out that uh, Paramount has um, postponed the release of Top Gun 2 yet again. So it's now November 21, which is extremely disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just start off. Uh, Krug, what's your favorite Top Gun moment? That's a tough one. I mean, one of the best lines in there is, I'm bringing him in closer. <laughs> going to do what? <laughs> nice. It's a good one. Uh, Sam, what about you? Oh, man, it's the beach volleyball scene for sure, Kenny. Dog tags and shorts. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, you know, if Katie's listening, Katie, I know that's the reason why you married me because I first met you playing beach volleyball at Pensacola Beach, and I wasn't wearing dog tags. But did you shorts? I did have shorts on. Jorts? Jorts, yeah. You had jorts on. Yeah, and a six-pack for sure. Nice. I think uh, I think my favorite scene of Top Gun is when, like, he's, he's screwed up, and they're sitting in, and Charlie's, like, talking about it, and... I forgot who it was. One of the other pilots like leans in. It's like gutsiest move I ever saw, man. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, that just makes me laugh every time. So. Well, shoot. Well, with that being said, hey guy, everybody knows this guy right here because if he uh, if he knows you, he calls you guy. This is uh, Matt Kruger. Welcome, dude. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're stoked. Matt's here for uh, P course, and we took, roped him into doing a little bit of chat about being an AOPS. And but if you want to start, just give us uh, a background. Where are you from? Where you've been stationed, uh, career this far, that kind of stuff. Yeah, originally from Maine. Uh, that's where the whole guy thing comes. Said, hey, man, hey, dude, it's hey, guy. That's pretty much how the great state of Maine So rolls. I got to ask, how yes, many sir. guys do you think you've said in your lifetime? I'm going to pull up my calculator while you answer. You can't, you can't count that. Daily average? It's got it. 25, 30? Yeah, I was going to say 20, 30. Yeah. What do we got? Math So... We're, I think we're probably close to 300,000, depending on when you started saying guy. And that was 30 a day. <laughs> That's probably, we're talking middle school, high school is when that really okay. started to sink in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yep. we're probably more than 30 a day would be my guess. Cause you can go 10 in a single conversation. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. All so right. That's so, the history yeah. of the guy. Sorry so yeah, from Maine, <laughs> um, had, uh, wasn't smart enough to get into the factory right away. So I went to, uh, Naps college university and then from there, went to uh, the factory, flight school, uh, Traverse City, Michigan for four years, uh, branch for four years, and uh, just finished up my AOPS tour sandwiched in between three years in Houston. Nice. Yeah. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So when did you go through flight school? I'm trying to think. We overlapped a little bit, I think. We did, yeah. yeah. 08 to 10. Yeah, okay. Late 08 to early 10. Yeah. You- we probably had some parties I at do, my house. I so. distinctly remember you probably, I was just getting there. So I'm sure that <laughs> you didn't remember, uh, the young guys coming in, but yes, <laughs> I distinctly remember a couple of parties at Kenny Ingram's place. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like I'll have people that will come through P course and they'd be like, Oh, Hey Kenny. And I'm like, ah, 
I don't think I know that person. And they're like, yeah, you don't know me, but we definitely partied at your house. I was mm -hmm. like, okay, yep. awesome. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There was probably about 50 other people there. So that's probably why, but it's fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. That's nice. awesome. You had a, a favorite so far. You know, you've gotten three air stations on your belt. Oh man. Uh, each one has been fantastic. Uh, we love Houston. Um, I could see that being a chapter two for us. Mm -hmm. Um, never really lived in the kind of an urban area and, convenience is nice. I like being able to walk around, walk to kids' school, stuff like that. It's it's awesome. So I see you got a beer in front of you. Kenny and I are drinking uh, IPAs. Yeah, Hoosie, Watson, Hopsy, Yeah, what do you got going on You know there? what I got? I got a nice Miller High Life. You know what they call that? <laughs> Champ champagne a rear. Champagne beer. <laughs> champagne a beer. You say champagne a rear? Uh, <laughs> It's only my first beer. But that's anyway, okay. That's okay. That's a shout out to Chuck Rusty right there. Right. I remember when somebody uh, after a course brought in like a 24 pack of Miller High Life and everybody in the division was like, oh, who brings Miller High Life in? And Chuck Rusty from across the room's like, man, I'm so happy somebody brought in Miller High Life. And I yelled from my cubicle, me too. It's great. It's a staple in our fridge now. Uh, you'll be happy to know. Should be. Good. Good. I'm certain. I'm, I'm glad that some things continue. Yeah. So I hear there's uh, some openings at Houston. Uh, what are the chances of getting a Houston slot? Asking for a friend, of course. Uh, asking for a friend, um, considering the one you're asking, wouldn't mind trying to stay an extra year. <laughs> do, the de do the detailers listen in on this thing? I don't know. I don't know. know. We right. don't know yet. Okay, got Mr. it. Mr. you out there? <laughs> Garrett. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, there's a uh, lot, of, lot of changeover in Houston this year. Hoping to, uh, got to maintain some semblance of continuity there. Mm -hmm. So that's my plug. But yes, there are some, uh, some openings there for, so what, your, for your friend. What's it like? Uh, I mean, you said you just finished up being a op. So mm -hmm. you, uh, so yep. you did two years, two years. AOPS. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, it was awesome. Um, really enjoyed kind of being that, you know, Houston sets it up as your AOPS and Stano. Um, Stano is always something that I wanted to be coming out of, of mobile being that, that instructor that everybody tries to come to and, um, just trying to be a good mentor for a lot of the new folks. And we had a lot of new folks when I first got there. I think we got four nuggets the first year and then two nuggets shortly after that, mm -hmm. which is why everybody's leaving yeah. this year. Yeah. So yeah. Busy job. Taking Very. Yeah. yeah. Um, throw a transition in there in the middle of the pandemic and things get pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. You guys are so, busy down there. Yep. Is um, that what you thought it would be or did you learn that maybe it wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be? Um, that was kind of what I thought it would be. I had some good examples, you know, coming up uh, over the years, like when I was back in Traverse City and um, people that I felt as my mentors were my AOPS and being in that job kind of felt about that same. It was nice. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the new AOPS syllabus that's coming out. Have you had a chance to look at that? And is that something that you think is going to be a, a positive direction for the Coast Guard or do you think it's going to just be uh, cumbersome and something that just kind of gets tossed in the on the back burner? Um. I've seen it and uh, looked it over. I think it's good. I, I, a lot of it is honestly, cause a lot of our uh, young folks are looking at it. It's things that you're going to do when you shift collaterals in your first tour and into your second tour. These are all things that you're going to accomplish anyway, just putting a little bit of extra attention and maybe having a discussion for it. So you're not kind of like I was when I first got into the job and, and balancing a lot of different things. You're not just winging it. You've mm -hmm. got something to fall back on. You know, the engineers have a, had this great, um, syllabus for a long time. Um, and, uh, and it provides them with a lot of materials to fall back on. And I think it could be in the future. So with maybe some polishing, I think it could be that tool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about the difference between being 
like a line pilot and now you're going to the AAPS job. So you're taking calls. Were you ready for that? Did you do anything to prepare? Did you have any crazy phone calls where you're like, man, this is, I got to make a good risk decision for this crew about to go out and do this. Um, uh, it's definitely, um, you, know, you kind of put yourself in the same situation as if it was you going out there and it's like, all right, what, what are the things, you know, based on my experience and that's kind of what it comes down to, especially if you've got some, uh, you know, your first tour AC going out there is based on my experience. What's, what are some other things that I want to ask? What do I want to figure out? Mm-hmm. Um, when they give you that, cause they're going to come out and they're going to give you a spiel and this is the case, this is the weather, these are all the other things. And you know, you're going to go through those things. And at the same time, you're like, okay, is there, am I, is he missing anything? He or she missing anything along the way? Um, so it was, uh, it's nice to kind of be that, um, it's like a sounding board. Yeah. That sounding board, that coach kind of going through. Yeah. Um, so any, uh, cases that stand out to you? Oh, or good ones that you guys have had there in Houston in the past uh, year or so? Um, just over a year. Um, probably the best case. My be- The best case of my career was was when I was in, it was the day after New Year's of 2020. Um, we were, unfortunately, it's not a good echo case. It was in the dirty Delta, but. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Still a dirty deep pile. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, I can it. I can smell it on it. It's terrible. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, we ended up going about 250 miles offshore cause a couple of, uh, retired oil and gas guys, these, these guys were funny cause you know, we had three hours in a plane with them on the way back and right. they, uh, you know, a couple of just old guys, they were avid sailors. Um, but, uh, they were going to sail by golly. They were going to sail to Mexico. Yeah, so boy. they left Houston and they got uh, about three days down the way and the weather got really bad for them. They were rocking. They had like an electrical fire overnight. Um, so I had the, uh, the first unit to get notified was Corpus. They sent their 144 out there. Mm-hmm. Um, they realized that things were really bad. The, uh, the challenging part was, um, as you know, in the Gulf coast, it's nasty, foggy, um, pretty much through a lot of the winter months, first thing in the morning. And yeah. I remember opening the door, looking out on the ramp and not being able to see about a hundred feet oh boy. out in front of us. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it was a good discussion and that's probably the, um, the big part about taking, uh, ops calls, um, cause Jordan Kellum was taking ops calls that day and he's another, uh, Oh four type. He wasn't the ops boss. He was another junior, a uh, little bit junior guy, mm-hmm. uh, taking calls. And he and I had a really good risk gain decision, um, about it. And it was like, all right, right now the weather, it, it's really bad. We're not going to go out unless you tell me that these guys are, uh, in a position where they're, they're in, pretty dire situation. It turns out it was, they had zero power. They were beamed to in about 10 to 12 foot waves, just getting absolutely abused overnight. Yeah. Um, rough. So, uh, so it was nice. We had to, that was the first time I had to go lily padding off the oil rigs and, uh, we landed on Lucius is one of the rigs we landed on. And that is the last oil rig, the furthest from, uh, the Gulf coast. Um, so it was the last, that's, that's the last one. Wow. You got about a hundred miles past that and that's as far as you can go. Yeah. Um, so we landed there, uh, or had to make two stops on the way out cause we had some pretty good headwinds, uh, went out, picked, uh, couldn't pick them up off the sailboat because the mast was swinging all over the place. So you're talking about different strategies on how to affect the case. And, uh, so we had, uh, Dakota Schick was our swimmer and we briefed it up at that time, the 144 crew from, uh, Corpus had bagged out. So they brought in the mobile crew. Bobby Brown was uh, P 
PIC for that. It was nice to hear. Uh, always comforting to hear the 144 guys up there as uh, for the cover asset. But mm-hmm. uh, in particular, when it's a buddy of yours, Bobby Brown is uh, the PIC. Yeah. And you hear him over the radio. It was, uh, it was nice to hear those guys up there. Um, the weather visually had cleared up, but it was still windy and there were still high seas once we got offshore. And uh, I had a pretty junior flight mech, Chris Connolly. But um, did you guys depart IFR? And just get offshore? Okay. Yeah. So we have kind of like you guys have here. It's the ATCA. It's basically like a prearranged point in space approach. So we filed for that, um, followed our protocols for that. Um, I changed it up a little bit and I used our first oil rig that we were going to stop at. That was my point in space. Mm -hmm. Um, And then by the time we got about 40 miles offshore, the weather had started to clear up a little bit. So basically 40 miles to the air station was crap. And then it kind of opened up a little bit after that. Yeah. So... Uh, which is good because about 30 to 40 miles is when the radios start to go out with both ATC and sector. So, um, so it was nice to get the Casa out there for that as well. Absolutely. So you got all the way out there. Um, how far out from that last oil rig did you have to go? We went about another 60 miles Wow. Uh, after that oil okay. rig. Okay. Yep. Yeah. You guys were, it must've it felt, was, <laughs> it was lonely out weird there, man. It, it was lonely. Five. Yeah. You know, there's no ship to go back and land yeah, on. Like, you will be, uh, you know, like I said, the, the voice of that 144 overhead when you're that far offshore is, is like your radio voice, Sam, man. It's like, uh, oh, man. yeah, it's like a it's thing of much. beauty. <laughs> so how'd the rescue go? Uh, it was, uh, it was good. We had a good discussion. There was no way we were going to get safely anybody onto that boat. Just, they had, they had so much stuff on the deck. The mast was swinging. Um, and again, a great 144 crew. We had good comms with them and they gave them the, uh, gave the boat the full brief said, Hey, uh, when the swimmer gives you the thumbs up, jump in the water, mm-hmm. the swimmer's going to come get you, pull you up and then pick them up. So we picked them both up from the water. Nice. Yep. That's uh, good. Made another rig landing on the way back. And then that point we had a, you know, 35, 40 knot tailwind coming back. So we got back relatively quick come to find out though this one this is where you know you talk about on a case you're like man this is almost done this is a great case we just picked two people up you know you're ready to high five each other and have a beer on the ramp and we come in and the weather was still lousy it's probably about three to four hundred feet overcast two to three miles visibility at ellington mm-hmm. and uh air traffic control came on and they're like hey uh we had one uh aircraft that wasn't receiving the ILS 3.5. Like, okay, so this is pre-echo time, so our nav approaches weren't an option. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like, all right, cool. Can we get the ILS 2.2? Pre-arrange it. Okay, yep, sounds good. Yeah, we can give you that approach. Uh, so we vectored us on to final, and we're coming in, and we're coming in. No localizer. Oh, really? Yep, so we couldn't receive that. And thankfully, as we were coming up the bay, we found a little uh, sucker hole over Galveston Bay, so, cause we're getting real low on fuel right now. We had already dropped our bingo down to about 300 and a little bit lower. So we turned around, got a vector for that little, uh, sucker hole, mm-hmm. spiraled our way down, got visual with the water and then came back in at about 300 feet on a low vis route. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Like it ain't over till it's over. It's not. Yeah. You know? You're just, you're ready to like high five it and, yeah. you know, you know, have a, enjoy the rest of the evening. And it was like, son of a, yeah, you gotta be yeah. on your A game still, mm-hmm. man. Yep. So I was landing on oil rigs. I know not every unit has the opportunity to do that. And there's some challenges associated mm-hmm. with that, right? Do you guys at Houston, do you have a little unit specific syllabus or is it just kind of 
on the job training? It's uh, it's not necessarily a specific syllabus, but we have several rigs that we've got an agreement with and we go train with them regularly. Before you stand duty, um, we try to get you out to at least a day rig, preferably a night rig as well. Um, and that's for, you know, second tour or uh, new folks coming out of automobile as well. Yeah. Yep. Nice. Do you ever have any close calls or uh, some pucker factor moments land into rigs, whether it was training or case? Um, so we have, uh, we've got one rig that's only about 34 by 34 and it's nice that it's one of our training rigs. Um, so we actually train on one of the smallest platforms that we'll land to. Mm -hmm. And this, this, it's got a crane that's relatively close to the pad and it just screams OSHA because there's this giant steel placard that jets out over the pad itself and says the gross weight of the crane. I'm like, that's some stupid OSHA requirement. And it dangles out <laughs> over the helo pads. You're coming in if you're in the left seat or the right seat, depending on which way you're coming in and just looking at this I beam staring right at you as you're coming in. But, uh, but it's nice to train on that small one so that a lot of the, a lot of the far, far offshore rigs, I mean, you're talking your big, um, your big fixed oil platforms. Yeah. Um, the tricky part on this one was, um, you know, cause you're, you know, anywhere from 150 to 200 feet above the water on these rigs. And that particular day, the second, uh, there, our third rig landing of the day, we had landed and the winds were still howling. And I'm sitting here looking up and, you know, we're the brakes on and everything's sitting there and the, the hell, the, the rigs move. That's one thing that you don't necessarily expect is when you're landing yeah. on there and it starts moving, like you're on the boat and you immediately feel uncomfortable. And then the wind is just like teeter totter and you're seeing the aircraft kind of, you know, move side to side on top. I'm like, we need to get out of here as quick as we can. Oh yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your hand motions. That really got me going. I know. Right I'm sure everybody uh, listening to this right now is picturing that. That's yeah, put exactly your hands out to your side, folks, and fly. And just go side to side. Yeah, that's yep. nice. Um, I'm not sure to do my hands. <laughs> hey, man, we all know that you were such a, a black hat here at ATC. Nobody oh, liked God. you. So how was transitioning back to the fleet after being here? Um, and then being a fleet IP, what, what was good, bad, ugly? Um it's, uh, it was nice to go back and, and build that relationship, especially going back to a small unit. Um, you're not just, you know, an instructor pilot. You're, you know, you're try trying, I'm not saying that I'm a great mentor, but you're trying to be a mentor about, you know, other things that, uh, the other, all the other things of the job that we all talk about. Um, so you're trying to, to work with folks through that and, you know, you're just hanging out after work too. Um, and that's something that, um, especially the T core students coming through, you don't kind of have that relationship. And, uh, it was nice to have that. It's a more personal relationship that you have with, um, especially the new folks coming to the unit. And, uh, it's really, really cool to see, like I said, I was lucky. We had about six nuggets within the first year and a half that I was there. And it is, there's nothing cooler than seeing them come in as, you know, brand new, you know, fresh out of your guys's hands here at Mobile, and then watching them grow to first pilot, aircraft commander, and then, mm -hmm. you know, seeing them head out the door Yeah, at, the, on the other end. That's definitely my favorite part of yeah. being an instructor cool. pilot is watching someone come from T-Course, just asses and elbows into everything they do. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, they make first pilot and then aircraft commander. And then you show up the next morning and in the morning brief, you yep. hear about, hey, yeah, duty crew is sleeping. They had a gnarly case last night, you know, and then, mm -hmm. yeah, they wake up and you're like, hey, let's go have a beer. Like, how'd it feel, man? Were you, yeah. were you ready for it? You know? Yeah. And that, that's my, that conversation in the wardroom with the beer is my favorite part of being an IP. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice coming back here too, to see, like, I, I was shocked at how many people 
you know, my first or second year uh, as an instructor here now back here as like oh threes and oh fours in the branch. And it's like, Oh man. Wow. Yeah. I did my I'm night procedure check with you. In I, know. <laughs> I still remember that flight downtown. Yep. Yep. downtown. Yep. That was probably terrible. No, not at all. Um, did you have to adjust your teaching style at all? Cause you were teaching, you know, T core students here and then you're going out to the fleet and you're like, teaching FPs, ACs. Um, I think the, almost here you're seeing a lot more, um, a lot more diverse population. You're, you know, coming out of flight school, there's so many different people. And like I said, especially at a small unit, you're coming in, you get to know people. Um, sometimes the hard part is when you do have to kind of, when you have that relationship with somebody and then you've got somebody that needs a little extra help. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes that change in hats is a little bit, a little bit more challenging when you've got a relationship with somebody and you want to tell them like, Hey, I, I hate to break it to you, you know, but that wasn't up to snuff. Yeah. You know, that, that conversation is a little bit harder. Um, but, uh, but as far as different styles, um, I mean, you're, you're using all the styles here because you have such a diverse population coming through. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I like that point. I mean, I've known Kenny for six years now and, and we're good buds and, uh, he was never afraid to tell me like, like what I needed to do to fix it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think like it comes out of gaining that respect from those junior members and, mm -hmm. you know, being that go-to IP or just, you know, getting involved with them, uh, that gives them that ability to, you know, come, come to you when they need to. And then for you to be like, Hey, not up to snuff. And they're like, okay, yeah, I'll fix it. Yeah. I'll get in the books. Yep. Yeah. Not only that, like, Hey, that sunset, here's what you need to fix it. Now let's go have a beer and hang out. And, and it's still normal, right? Mm -hmm. There isn't this weird barrier that's now set up between you two. And it just, you got to maintain that pro professional ability. And again, that's one of those, those areas where you're teaching them just not like outside the cockpit, like this is work. We're going to do work things and we're going to get past work. And then we're going to go do other things afterwards. You got to be able to separate that. And that, that alone is a, is a good lesson to learn. Yeah. Good breweries around uh, Ellington Field down there? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, lots of them. Good. Yeah, St. Arnold's, uh, Eureka Heights, got plenty of them. Right yeah. with it, within bicycle distance, it's nice. Are you guys getting back to um, wardroom outings uh, there with the COVID? We are, yeah. Um, we we haven't really had a... Um, we had, uh, you know, there was... We, we were able to find an outdoor venue for Coast Guard Day, so we had a really good, uh, um, a good thing for that. We're just, I mean we were in split up into three duty sections for so long that even just having a pilot training with everybody present, not on a, you know, on a zoom meeting has been just a breath of fresh air since the beginning of the summer has been really nice. I'm sure. Yep. That's yeah, awesome. During your time as AOPS, did you ever have a big disagreement with uh, your boss ops? How did you handle it? Uh, how do you pick and choose those battles? I mean, obviously we could look up to see who your ops was. So keep that in mind. <laughs> but, uh, you know, how did you, how did you go about some disagreements? Uh, you know, the important thing is that at the end of the day, um, for the sake of not just the junior folks, but all the other pilots and air crew at the unit, you've got to have a unified front. Um, but also your job is if there is something different, if there's a different direction, that you would like to go or that's a different direction available. That's your job as AOPS to give the obligatory, but sir, um, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes that's passionate. Uh, I know, uh, um, I know ops when, when I was, uh, when, when I was AOPS, my, I tend to, uh, 
voice my feelings very strongly, which is probably a fault of mine. <laughs> but, uh, but again, it was nice to have that relationship um, with ops uh, that, hey, no matter what happened, we're going to have it out here behind closed doors. And then when we come out, you know, doesn't matter what the decision was, we're, we're a team. Yeah. You know, and that that's the important part is, um, yeah, you can provide that counter argument, but you got to be, you got you to you support the leadership no matter what the decision is. Yeah. yeah, I had an awesome supervisor tell me one time, he's like, it's your job to tell me if I'm about to do mm-hmm. something stupid. Yep. And that it just gives you the permission to be like, if you disagree with I'm, what I'm about to do or the direction I'm going, it's your job to at least tell me. We may not walk out of here. I may not agree with your take on it, but- at a minimum, it's your job to be like, hey, sir, uh, you're making a huge mistake. I think you're going to look like an idiot in front of the crew. And that, at least the, the discussion can happen. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a really good point. I like that honesty. And that was a two-way street too. Like when, when, we, when it did go out, there was, there was no egos. You know, if maybe I did convince, uh, convince ops otherwise, um, it was, like I said, we came out of the, came out of the room as, uh, as one team and it was nice. It was a good, re- we had a good relationship when it came to that. Yeah, so being AOPS at a small unit, like you have, you have some pretty big reins there, right? Like obviously you work for ops, but um, people are coming to you. Ops is looking to you to solve ninety percent of the stuff that before it gets to their desk. How did you learn about yourself and being a leader? Was it more difficult than you thought? And some of those decisions, you're like, man, I don't feel like there's a right decision here, or man, both of these decisions, I don't feel like are the right one, but I'm I'm kind of forced to make these two, or or one of these decisions. How did that, how did that turn out? Yeah, there was, I mean, you're, you're always, like I said, you're, you're kind of the middleman, especially when, um, when, when the decisions being made by, um, by somebody else that may not necessarily be popular with the younger group, the, maybe the younger generation. Um, cause, and that's, an, that's the other big thing is you're even just straight up age wise, you're the middle generation. You know, so you've, and, and, and it's probably more obvious now than it ever has been in my career, the difference in, in generational gaps. And maybe, maybe that older leadership group is a lot more like, Hey, gung ho hard mm-hmm. for the coast guards. You know, we're going to do all these things to support the troops. And maybe that younger generation is not as enthusiastic about those things. Uh, and it's hard to be the middleman and, you know, you know, your job is to try to, if that, if it is a generational thing, if that younger generation, you've got to try to convince them to like, Hey, sorry, I hate to break it to you guys, but you know, this is what we're going to do. This is the expectation. Yeah. Um, and it's cause you, cause you kind of see, see it from both sides. You know, you see the advantage of, you know, being hard for some, some part of the organization, but also you see the other side, that's the generation that doesn't necessarily, that's not as enthusiastic about that. And you got to play both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, as we start growing in our responsibility and leadership, it's, it's easy to be the JG who's like, well, that decision is stupid. I can't believe they did that. And then you start working and like, now you're the one making that decision and it, and it weighs on your heart a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, when you Mm -hmm. have to make really tough decisions, especially when you think of yourself as that JG probably saying, God, that's a dumb decision. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. And that, that's exactly what it is. You're right there in the middle. Maybe you even leave, lead more towards that younger generation, but you also know that your job is to support the command and support the, uh, the organization's view. And sometimes you just got to do that. Yeah, definitely uh, creating that rapport with people in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think 
eases that burden. All right. At least I assume it would. Yep. I haven't had to make any AOPS type decisions yet, but. But having that trust factor and that, that relationship already built, like you said, uh, is, is key. Cause they know that, um, oh man, if Krug's is coming up to ask us to do this one thing and I don't want to do it, he wouldn't be asking me to do it if it didn't have to happen. Yeah. You know, which is nice. That is good. Um, I kind of want to dive in a little bit into the echo since you guys are the first unit that are, you know, fully qualled and, and you're fly, you've been flying it for what, like a year and a half, just over a year, yep. just over a year. Yep. Yeah. So what's your overall thoughts on the echo, your feedback and, you know, from the older generation perspective, learning another, probably their fifth version of the 65 to, you know, those new JOs in the wardroom. <laughs> um, I, I really enjoy it. I can tell you my dream sheet is in and it is all echo units. Um, <laughs> so if that's, if that doesn't convince you uh, where I sit with it, um, you know, I don't know what else will, but I, I absolutely love it. And you're right about, again, we're talking about some generational differences. Um, it is definitely probably harder for some of us that have been, you know, HH to MH to Delta, uh, to make those transitions, especially the information overload. I remember when I was going through my echo transition and you're in the sim <laughs> for three hours and you're just staring at this screen and like, man, my eyeballs hurt. It hurts. Uh, but, you know, after a three week course, uh, you know, then you get out there at night. And for my first night flight, again, I felt like I was immediately in a different planet. And then my second night flight felt a lot better, which was a good thing because we ended up going on the first SAR case afterwards. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that very first night that I was on duty, but, um, it's a steep learning curve, but it's great. Um, we've, we've done a lot and mobile has been great. Um, our guys in Houston have been great. Just, it's been a great exchange of information. Hey, this part of the syllabus, uh, could be tweaked a little bit. Um, and, and, and you guys here have been very open to that and, and welcoming of, of feedback like that. And I think there's uh, there was definitely a really good product out there. And I think we learned a lot coming in. Um, the, the information overload, you get used to it. And I think that's, um, but it's nice to be back here after a little over a year mm -hmm. for the first P course. Cause you're like, man, I got this. I'm not getting lost in the button pushing anymore. I can program all these different things. Like I got this. And then you get in the sim with Mark Wyckoff. Oh boy. And he starts talking about, uh, you know, the fully coupled ILS approach and I speed and all these things. And then, you know, you're it's funny that like our smartest echo pilot is the one guy that's never actually been in the aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that guy is a genius. He, yeah, he it, really it's is. incredible. Yeah. But, um, and it's nice to be humbled like that. That's probably the big takeaway is, um, as a, you know, scary to think myself as a more senior pilot, but as a more senior pilot coming in and trying something new, it's humbling and it's a great thing. Yeah. Uh, especially for those that are looking to fly on the outside, like that, this is the future. You are never going to fly anything that's, you know, Delta or previous. I feel like I need to fly rip, on the outside. I, I feel like I need to rip off that bandaid for myself. Cause man, am I clinging on to the Delta? Like, uh, yeah, dude, we gave you a chance. Yeah. But like, no, I no, wasn't no. ready for that, man. Yeah. I wasn't ready for that. Dirty D for life. It was, yeah, a, dirty D for there was life. a Detroit bird that was coming through Houston for a, uh, try swap somewhere. And I just looked inside. I was like, ew, it look at this archaic piece. Oh my God, shit. David. Yeah. Hey man, I, I did two <laughs> weeks in Puerto Rico this summer on the D dirty D and it was awesome. Uh, so wouldn't get that in the echo. Uh, nope. Krugs, I don't know if you know this, but I still talk about you going through your three week transition course here. And it's, oh, it's God. funny cause you're talking about like generations. <laughs> so, uh, Cruz came through with, uh, Daniela, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Yep. And, uh, 
classic example, like Krug's was like, <laughs> it's one of the first like Sims, it's like cockpit procedures. And he rolls in there like a bull in a china shop. Like, yeah, I feel pretty good. I think I got this. You know, he's like, I'm ready to go send some duty. <laughs> and he starts the checklist. He's in the right seat first. And you could just see Daniel over there being like, oh, nope. that's wrong. That That's also wrong. <laughs> yep. Actually, you completely missed a step. <laughs> but it was just so funny to see a younger generation. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of it is, you know, she has been in a syllabus her entire aviation career from yep. flight school to right seat skills to co-pilot to first pilot. She makes aircraft commander. And oh, by the way, here's a new. So like her brain was just studying. Mm -hmm. She could just do it. And you probably haven't looked at the dash one for a year and a half. You know, like you're teaching that stuff. You're doing EP so much that you don't have to like dive into it. Right. Just like the, the new people were. Well, so. He was under commander Tucker. I mean, it wasn't his big thing. Read the dash one for like 20 minutes every uh, day. 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a day. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, he's probably definitely reading it for 30 minutes a day. Got big head nods over there from Kruger guy. Yeah. <laughs> no pay, pay no attention to the, uh, huh? so, um, what, what's your favorite uh, thing of the echo or top three? What do you like? I really like the, uh, the fuel planning. So, uh, that, and, and again, going from the Delta, from the previous models, you're like, Oh, how can you change the bingo? This is going to be revolutionary. And you know what? It is revolutionary. And it's very much in the positive that that first case. So I did my RT four here, uh, was felt lost because when you go from that daytime environment to the nighttime, and again, you're looking at those screens, it's, it's definitely change changes a lot, but um, I got back on Saturday and my was oncoming duty on Tuesday night. Daniel, I took Danielle out. She was my co-pilot, uh, for her RT4 so she could get her advanced Sarqual. And then about an hour after we landed, we got a call about a shrimp boat taking on water, uh, about a hundred miles away from the, uh, from the air station. So it was South of Lake Charles, mm -hmm. um, which like I said, as a crow flies about a hundred miles away. Um, so as soon as we took off, we got everything stabilized. Um, and it's like, all right. This, right now, um, you know, ICAST says we only have about 12 minutes, but then you get in and you do some of those, those fuel, um, you know, you're updating your speed and your, the altitude, all those things. It is a little bit more button pushing, um, but man, you can get some great information. And I was a, I've never been able to do this before, but I was able to turn around to Zach Burley, our swimmer that day and say, Hey man, you've got 25 minutes and I'm out like wow. to a T. And sure enough, he came in, he did his, you know, 25 minutes. Um, and it was enough time for us to get the pump down on the boat. Um, Danielle did a hell of a time on a shrimp, shrimp boat that was fully rigged and everything was out in the worst possible place for a, for a helicopter hoist and uh, was able to get the pump on board. Zach was able to get it running in such a way that it was like, Hey, I need to leave Zach. Are you okay staying on, on board this vessel? Um, yeah. And yeah, so we went out, got gas, came back. Um, by the time we got back, the small boat was on station and they had defueled it enough that the boat was probably going to be recoverable. They could tow it in. So we picked up Zach and, and came home. And that was our very first duty night in the Echo three days after the transition. Yeah. And that's really good feedback because you're, you're right. You, you finish that flight plan mm -hmm. management class and people come out of there wide eyed mm -hmm. and like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this course, you know, and, and people talk about bingo, but it is, it's surprisingly accurate when you, we, once you learn how to use it. We landed within two minutes of what, what the, you know, the calculations said we would, it was that precise. It was amazing. Yeah. That that's fantastic. That's yep. good. Good feedback. Yep.
better than my airplane math. 600 pounds an hour, dude. 600 pounds, yeah. Well, that's that's how we do yeah. it. And we actually got yep. pretty damn good at it, right? You're like, mm-hmm. okay, it's 100 miles. You're like, okay, that's 15 minutes. That's 500 pounds. We're going to land with 200 pounds. Seven. Okay, uh, we need to be leaving with 950 <laughs> pounds of gas. And we get pretty good at it after, you know, two to three tours worth of it, right? Yeah. So it's hard to pass that knowledge on to a first tour person. Now you don't need to do it because it does it for you. And, yeah. and the radar in that thing would probably be my second it was amazing. It was another uh, another case that I was on. We were coming back. There's thunderstorms in the south, um, those isolated ones. And we had such a good weather radar picture um, on the aircraft, on the MFD. And then between that and what we can see on the EFB, I was able to match both radar pictures. They were identical. And I was like, cool, I'm just going to meander my way through these storms. And we got home, no problem. Wow. It's awesome. I think that radar is obviously they don't parts for it anymore. <laughs> I'm glad you like <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. Not, I'm not kidding either. I knew it was too good to be uh, true. There was something too good about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll have uh, ALC on for an episode. We'll ask <laughs> yeah. about it. Other cool things about the Echo, like EPCs only take like oh, nine so seconds quick. now. Oh, you man. just hit a button. No nine way. seconds, spits yes. up numbers. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Your yep. fuel panel check, uh, when you go check like left tank, zip, right zip. tank, it's, it's maybe a second each yep. side. Can I, can you screw yourself over with the fuel calcs though? Is there like a, I mean, there's a lot of button pushing, right? So garbage in, garbage out. Okay. You're right. Have you you had that happen to you? I have not, but I think we've. It's too good. (laughs) Not true. (laughs) Uh, That's probably one thing that we emphasize the most in Houston, especially on those, those cases where we're going long distance, dual pilot protocol. Hey, I put these things in. Does this make sense? You know? And somebody like Danielle, who's already sharper on all that stuff than I am, can look down and be like, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But like you said, the aircraft still burns 600 pounds an hour. So you're like, okay, I'm an hour from home. Mm -hmm. Okay. I need to, we need to leave here with 800 pounds. Yep. Boom. Done. Yeah. Easy math. Yep. Um, Sweet. What do you got? Anything else, Kenny? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to leave anything on the table, but uh, we usually end with, uh, career advice that you've gotten that's helped you along your way, or, Hey, this is, you know, the, these are my pillars of aviation excellence or what, you know, whatever you want to title it. Pillars of aviation. Excellence. I just came up with that. That's pretty oh, good. Dang. That's pretty good. Uh, high life probably wouldn't be on one of those. I think pillars, that could be, might be a little bit close, but <laughs> number uh, one, uh, no, that's probably not a good thing. Uh, you know, I think, uh, um, Mark Grabowski way back was my first AI ops grubby. Um, you know, his big thing was be humble. Uh, and if there's one thing that I've learned, especially over the last two years with the echo transition and with all these generational things that we're talking about is, is yeah, be, be humble. Cause you can, you can come in and have, um, you know, be in the, the one unit that's flown the echo most over the last year and change, feel pretty good about yourself. And then, like I said, Mike, Mark Wyckoff comes in and just rocks your world and, in one sim event. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, be humble. Cause you can always learn something new. Um, you can always grow. Sweet. That's awesome. Well, burger guy. It's great. Yeah, guy. Here, man. Hey, thanks for sticking <laughs> around and, uh, safe drive back to Houston. It's buddy. been fun. Yeah. Give me a shout anytime. Thanks, buddy.